0: Today's episode of the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. If you're looking to install some new windows or a new door, a great place to start with Pella is their showroom. Sometimes it actually helps to see the windows and see the door, open it, close it, to get a better feel for exactly what you're going to be installing into your home. The showrooms are really cool. they got showrooms in Omaha and in Lincoln, so go check them out. Or you can check Pella out online at PellaOmaha.com. That's pellaomaha. Dot com. And the Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Runza. You know, I love it when I get tweets like this. Cody tweeted at me and said this. Hit up the Runza super secret menu today. Had pickles put on my Runza. Who'd have thought? Thanks, Nick. Love it, Cody. Absolutely love it. You need to take advantage of of this super secret menu item. You realize you can put anything within reason on a Runza sandwich. You want pickles like Cody? Go for it. You want ranch dressing? Go for it. You want pepper jack cheese? Go for it. Because every Runza starts as an original Runza sandwich, so you can add anything in the kitchen, again, within reason, onto your Runza sandwich. Delicious. Get out to Runza today and give it a try. Runza makes it all better. Okay, welcome back to the uh, to the pod. And, you know, uh, you know, the, usually with these solo podcasts that I do, you know, I have a couple of things I like to do structurally wise. I either like to do a mailbag podcast where I just get questions from you guys and answer a bunch for about, you know, 30, 45 minutes. Or I do something uh, that I like to call three topics in 30 minutes uh, where I just pick three topics, kind of deep dive them. And uh, quick, easy, on to the next one. But today, I kind of wanted to do something else. It's kind of fun. This is the beauty of podcasting is, you know, it's a, it's a blank canvas. You can experiment, try different things, do what you want with it. Today, I'm unveiling Take a Palooza. Take a Palooza. I started writing down, you know, topics and thoughts for the, for what's going on, whether in the moment or big picture things with sports or life or whatever, and uh, and and wrote down a bunch of takes with them on a bunch of different things. And before you know it, I wrote 21 pages. I wrote 21 pages on like 20-plus different topics. I mean, I don't know how this happened, but that's how Take a Palooza was born. So let's do it, man. Buckle up, sit back, here we go. It's officially Take a Palooza Part 1. Here we go. First topic, the transfer portal and this new one-time transfer rule being in effect, you know, where, where anybody can transfer one time and be eligible immediately. And you know this isn't uh, this is something that's been brewing but it officially got passed and I've said this before I've I've can see all different sides of this situation and this topic. But at the end of the day from a uh, you know from a what's fair standpoint, it makes sense that this rule got passed. It just does. You know like if uh if Chris Beard can leave Texas tech to go to Texas and coach right away because he thinks that's the best situation for him, you know, then it stands to reason that that same freedom and opportunity should be there for a player. And I've said this before, uh, but you know, what's, what's fair isn't always what's best for the sport as a whole. And we don't need to go totally down this path again, but you know, I feel like I can be for something like this one-time transfer rule, but also recognize that I think it's probably, you know, I don't think it's probably what's best for the sport as a whole, to be honest with you. And that's a weird kind of predicament to be in. And, you know, I was thinking about this when I was writing this down. I don't really know how this rule will impact college football. I really don't. I'll, I'll get into that in a se- shelve that for a second. But I, I know from a college basketball standpoint, I've said this before and I'll say it again. The biggest one of the biggest things that's plaguing college basketball is continuity. I think college basketball is a continuity problem. I think that's one of their biggest, if not their biggest issues. Finding a way to keep players in college basketball longer and keeping rosters intact for longer and, and two, three, four years, is those are pressing issues to me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not anti one and done. I'm not, I'm not one of those people that tries to somehow argue that like Zion or Carmelo Anthony or Jalen Suggs are somehow bad for the, sco- the sport of college basketball being in it for just one year. I mean, when given the option of you either get them for one year or none, I'll take one year. Uh, I, I'll take one year of Zion over no years of Zion, right? But again, I also think that all the one and dones, combined with all the players leaving early who won't get drafted, which is an a epidemic in and of itself, and then all the transfers, which will now go up with this new rule in place where you can transfer and be eligible immediately, I think it it hurts college basketball overall I think the product suffers a bit that's how I see it Again I feel like I can be for something and say, and say you know what that's fair that's how this rule should be but there are ramifications to it so I can see a lot of different sides to this situation but again from a what's fair standpoint this rule probably had to change and you know I was thinking about my situation I, I know for me. When I transferred from Kansas to Creighton and had to sit out a year due to the transfer rules back then, that year killed me. It just killed me. That, that redshirt year sitting out where I couldn't play, kill, it killed my confidence. It killed my rhythm. I lost my edge a bit. It killed me. It was just hard for me. When you are healthy and you are practicing and you know you can't play, you cannot. No matter what happened, you were going to be in street clothes at the game. It messes with you. It, it messes with you. I found it hard to stay locked in. I found it hard to stay sharp. That year felt like five years to me. It felt like an eternity. The longest year of my life was that redshirt year in college. And for me, when you when you combine that with the fact that for two years at Kansas, I was kind of in and out of the lineup to begin with, begin with, and basically not playing for long stretches of times. I just had completely lost my flow and lost my confidence completely. So for me, I would have loved this rule, man. I would have loved to have been able to transfer and be eligible immediately. To be honest with you, I think my career at Creighton would have been different if I could have played right away. You know, this sounds weird, but I think I would have been a better player and had a better career at Creighton. If I would have been able to be eligible right away after I transferred again, that's just me. And I know that there are others who have you know, transferred in that redshirt year and sitting out was great for them. It wasn't for me. So I guess from a personal standpoint, in thinking about this rule change, I'm jealous that this wasn't in place and an option for me at the time because I think it could have really changed the trajectory of my time as a player at Creighton. That year sitting out really hurt me. But back to the reason I wanted to talk about this. I feel like I have a sense for how this rule is going to impact college basketball and what's it, what it's really going to look like in that sport. But I'm really curious to see how this one-time transfer rule impacts football. I think, I think basketball and football have some pretty dramatic differences, which will make it interesting to see the differences with the transfer thing. First of all, like in basketball – you can show up to a new program and play right away much easier. It's just kind of the nature of the sport. Right? Like I mean think about it. You see this sometimes in in uh in the NBA, you see team, you, you'll see times where certain players will get traded on a Monday and on Wednesday they're playing with that new team. Football, that's just more often than not probably not going to happen. What I'm getting at is, it's it's harder in football to just show up and plug and pl- and plug it in and play. There's a lot more to learn in terms of a playbook and a in the system and terminology. You know, and basketball has that. Don't get me wrong; it's not like you're just it's a pickup game. You're just rolling it out there, but it's more of a feel sport, right? football is is much more rigid in its dependence on systems and assignments and and playbooks and knowledge of those things so what i'm getting at is i think for basketball the transfer move to play right away is 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 much more realistic than in football for the most part and second of all younger players can get playing time and make a a huge impact right away in basketball more than in football. There's a a non-negotiable level of strength you gotta have to be able to play college football outside of maybe, I don't know, wide receiver, running back, quarterback, I guess, to a certain extent. Football is is much more of a wait-your-turn type of a situation than basketball is. And I wonder what that will look like when the temptation of transferring and play somewhere else right away, that option is kind of dangling out there. Football almost requires patience for players of at least one year, sometimes two to three years before you're really ready to play and have an impact. Basketball, that's not always the case. And I'm just, how does that reality, exist in a new reality where players have the option of going somewhere else and playing right away? I don't know. I I really don't. So, again, I feel like I can wrap my head around what the the college basketball transfer world will look like now with this new world and new rule in place. But I have a much harder time with college football because just inherently, structurally, the, the sports are just built differently. So I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Topic number two. Next topic. So I've noticed something brewing and building up within the Nebraska football fan base. And it's kind of concerning for me. And to be honest, it's a little shocking given how everyone felt about Scott Frost when he was hired. So I'll give you a little anecdote as kind of like a, uh, a, a case in point. You know, Scott Frost was on the radio with Greg Sharp taking calls from fans about a week ago, and Sam McEwen of the Omaha World Herald was listening, as were you know Parker Gabriel and a bunch of different guys as well. They were listening and they tweeted out some quotes while Frost was talking on the radio. Here is a here's a tweet from Sam McEwen, a, a quote from Frost who says Frost on the radio quote We're faster than we've ever been." that's the tweet let me let me read you some of the some of the comments below this tweet at husker rex says best practicers in the history of practicing at Ival 851 says and it begins justin on twitter says getting fired faster than we ever than ever too charles says We've heard all this before. Still Ref 3 tweets, I love Scott, but, and it's a a gif of uh, Robert Downey Jr. rolling his eyes and crossing his arms. Uh, Chaboy6969 says, yeah, like, I know he's supposed to be positive, but stop getting my hopes up. Uh, John says, sure, best practice ever. Husker Fast tweets, faster three three and outs, am I right? I mean, I could keep going, but I think you get the point. There were a lot more of those types of comments. No, I mean, you, you look at that, there were basically zero positive comments from that tweet on Twitter. And this is just kind of a snapshot with the fact that I think a good chunk of fans have gotten cynical with Scott Frost. Basically, everything Frost does and says right now for a decent chunk of the fan base is met with an eye roll, a crossing of the arms, or a a snarky joke. And man, that's not good. When it gets to this place, this, this cynical place, It's hard to change it. It's hard to get out of it unless you win and kind of win big. Basically, I get the sense that there's a pretty good chunk of fans that don't believe anything Frost says with regards to the team or the program, which then begs the question, do they believe in him? I mean, that's kind of where the situation is for some fans. Now, again, Twitter can be an echo chamber and doesn't necessarily reflect uh, everyone's opinions. And Twitter is is kind of a place that's built for just you know f- part of my friends for built for people being assholes, right? Snark reigns supreme on Twitter. I get all that, but this isn't just one isolated incident. I read my tweets. I read my Twitter timeline. I read my emails. I talk to people. But I guess for me, coming from someone who is rooting like hell for Scott Frost and wants to see Nebraska football back on top, being successful, I just get concerned that we've entered into Cynicalville with a lot of the fans. Literally everything Scott Frost does or says now is met with an eye roll from a lot of fans. Ugh, best practice ever, huh? Okay. Oh, God, he thinks he likes where the team's at. Oh, God. Oh yeah, I bet you like the the strength and conditioning right now. Okay, Frost. Like that's 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 what is out there right now, and that is just amazing considering who Scott Frost is and how he was received when taking the the the, the Nebraska football job. Now, I, I don't want to be disingenuous and act like I can't understand it at all. I mean, I can to a certain extent how fans would would enter into cynicalville, right? I mean, th- the three years, the records twelve and twenty, it's been disappointing. And Frost Scott Frost has said a lot of things during that time to pump up the team, and then the results are what they are. Again, I'm not I'm not stupid. I'm my head's not buried in the sand. I'm not trying to be disingenuous. But I guess even with acknowledging all that, like I'm I'm with you on a lot of stuff. Hey, twelve and twenty has been disappointing, frustrating with a lot of different things. Even with acknowledging all that, I'm not cynical with the guy. And maybe that's because I still believe in him. And that's what is really concerning to me. I can't help but pose this question of, if you start getting cynical and eye-rolling everything someone says, does that mean you don't believe in them anymore? Like, if, if I have, if my wife, if, I, if it gets to the point where everything my wife does and says, I'm rolling my eyes, I'm crossing my arms, I'm saying snarky shit under my breath. Oh, God. Are we in a good place? Do I still, like, where are we at? If you start getting cynical and eye-rolling and crossing your arms and making snarky comments after everything someone says and does, do you still believe in that person anymore? I, I have a hard time feeling like it does. And that's a tough place to be in as a coach. And the only way out of it is to win. And I just wonder what level or kind of winning in the short term would get the fans that have bought a house in Cynicalville to move out of that area to, I believe, in Frostville. I don't know. Six wins, six and six, does that do it? Do they got to win the division next year? Do they got to win the division and they got to be playing the Big Ten title within the next two years? Like, I don't know. It's just something I've noticed. And, you know, being in a, you know, observing a lot of, of coaches come and go, whether it's Nebraska, wherever, or, you know, just having a lot of relationships and observing a lot of relationships. When people enter, enter into cynicalville with someone, that's a problem. That's a problem. And it's something I've noticed, and it's something I'm I'm definitely gonna be watching closely. And I just I'm on Twitter, I see Sam's tweet, and I just am like, look at this. All he says, hey, we're faster than ever been before, and it's like negative snark, eye roll, sh- shru- shoulder shrug, ar- like eye roll, snarky comment. Get-. It's like whoa, whoa. Next topic, which leads me, it kind of leads me into another interesting fan experience thing I've had. So I was, uh, I was recently having a conversation with someone. I'm not going to say who, but I I was talking to, I I was talking some Husker football with this person and uh, let me, this person, I've always really valued this person's perspective because I typically, I think he's a great representative of, of a, of the typical Husker football fan. So to me, it's, it's always interesting to gauge their mentality and where they're at and what they're thinking, because to me, it, it, it helps me better understand where the general fan base's heads are at, which can kind of help me provide content for you guys. At the end of the day, like, I know where my bread's buttered. N- line share of my audience and people that consume my podcast or listen to my radio show back in the day, they're Nebraska football fans. And in order for me to best serve you, it helps for me to understand what you're thinking, how you're feeling. And so I'm having this conversation with this person. This person told me with regards to Nebraska football that he has really, really pulled back in his emotional investment and overall consumption of Nebraska football coverage and chatter. And I was kind of like, whoa. Because this was this was a guy that was read everything, read every article, listened to every radio show, consumed every online story, press conference, all that stuff. Couldn't get enough. And he said, I'm pulling way back. I'm just, I'm pulling way back, way, way back. He actually told me, he goes, you know what? I'm, I, I decided I'm at the point where I, I picked one writer. I read only his stuff and I listen to your podcast and that's it. He said, it's just an emotional drain to consume it all anymore. And I was like, whoa, wow. Okay. Interesting. By the way, he's not necessarily the only person who I've heard something similar to with this. But I heard that, I thought, whoa, okay. And then he and then he went on to say something really interesting. He said, Nick, I'm just, I'm tired of the who's right and who's wrong aspect of the Nebraska football conversations. And that's really interesting to hear. Because I can totally understand where he's coming from with that. Nebraska football has almost gotten like our political world in some ways, where a line is drawn, and you either are on one side or you're on the other. Started with with it really started to me with Bo Pelini, where a line was drawn, and you were either for Bo or against Bo. And it, and it's just continued, right? You either believe in Mike Riley or you don't. You either believe in Mark Banker or you don't. You either believe in Adrian Martinez or you don't. You either believe in Eric Chander or you don't. You either believe in Scott Frost or you don't. And it's almost like you have to choose a side and dig in. And that can can get to be exhausting. To be honest, one of the reasons I love talking Nebraska football with Bo Rude is because he's the complete opposite of of that. He's the complete opposite of, of this world that we're talking about. I find Bo to be measured and and thoughtful and curious and open-minded. He he skews positive, but he also keeps it real. I love him for that. And I hope you guys, too. You guys do, too, because I have him on the pod all the time, and I see the numbers you guys really react to when I have Bo in the pod. But not everyone is like that. And I know for me, like, engaging in a political discussion with anyone, like, I got to really... it's a really tricky thing, right? I bet I'm not alone in that. You got You almost got to pick and choose who you engage with because some people, you know where they fall, you know they rev high, you know the conversation gets heated quickly. Right? Like, you got to be like, uh, if you feel a conversation going to somewhere politically, you're like, ooh, no, 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 we're not going to go there because I know how you get. It's almost like that with Husker football right now for some people. All of a sudden, it's going towards a conversation about Scott Frost. You're like, oh, God, I know Tommy always just goes... F- crazy with this stuff hold on no 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 and I know for me that that world can get exhausting so I just found this person's thoughts to be fascinating with the mindset of Husker of of, of this you know this is technically just one person's mindset for Husker football f- fandom but I think he's not alone so it's interesting I feel like there's a good chunk of Husker fans that fall into two buckets right now the first bucket extremely cynical, like I just laid out, everything Frost does says comes out of the anything that comes out of the program is met with an eye roll, a crossing of the arms, a snarky comment, whatever. Or they fall in the other bucket, where they've kind of pulled back their consumption and their emotions. That's an interesting dynamic with the fans. Interesting dynamic with the fans. And again, the only way out of that is probably winning. You want to change the conversation? You probably got to change the scoreboard. I guess. I guess. Next topic. All that kind of leads me to the kind of the current moment for Nebraska football. With spring football in the books, you know, kind of want to put a nice tidy bow on my thoughts with with things. So I wrote down a bunch of different stuff. I wrote down about six different spring football takes or things I learned or things I still don't know or I'm concerned with or thoughts. But here we go. One of the things that, that stood out to me early, and Bo Rude brought it up in one of our early spring football conversations, and then Kevin Kugler brought up something similar in a conversation I had with him on my podcast that you guys should all go check out after the spring game. There were two things, one from Greg Austin and one from, from Matt Lubick that were, were pretty interesting to me. Greg Austin told the media that they've kind of slowed down in practice where they've, they've, they've slowed down, where everything used to be kind of built around and predicated on tempo, 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 play fast, play fast. No matter what happens, you're up to on the line for the next play. You're trying to get as many plays off in practice to condition yourself to play like that in a game where it's go, 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 tempo, 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 up on the ball, snap it, let's go. Which, you know, that was obviously how Nebraska was going to be built when Frost first got here. But Greg Austin has said they've kind of slowed things down a little bit, which has been really good for the offensive lineman, And I think that's also really good for correcting details, correcting mistakes, Cleaning up on sloppiness. Because let's be honest, sometimes, if you're like me, sometimes you've watched Nebraska the first three years and you sit there and watch and they make, you know, they're all they're so sloppy, all the penalties, the lack of organization, all this stuff, you kind of sit there and you go, What the hell are they doing at practice? Or do they even practice? Well, I think one of the things they do is they just go fast as shit. And sometimes when you're when you're selling out to speed and tempo and pace and go, 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 go. One of the things that can get sacrificed in that is details, fundamentals. I remember, I, I remember having this conversation with with Barrett w- when he was first around Frost at Central Florida. He said it's interesting, and, and maybe they've changed over the years, but I think they're really maybe changing now. He 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 said, you know. We go so fast in practice that a lot of our teaching has to be done in the film and meeting room because if, you know, if someone maybe makes a mistake in on a play or something happens in a play, you, instead of maybe stopping it and, and teaching and correcting in the moment, you got to get up to the next play because again, you're selling out to conditioning and tempo and, and pace. And that's what your identity is going to be. Well, while some people learn in the film room and learn in meetings and show them film and, hey, pause, what should you have done on this play? What's your read? Who's your key? All that stuff, right? Some people learn with that, and there's there's certainly a lot of value in film. But sometimes you got to correct something in the moment. Somebody doesn't read their keys. Someone messes up an assignment. Someone doesn't communicate. You need to blow the play dead and correct it in the moment. Because that's how, I mean, based on my experiences, that's how a lot of the teaching can get done. There's tons of value in film. But sometimes you need to stop it in the moment. Where coaches blow the whistle. Hold on, hold Everybody get back to where they were. Reimer, right here. Where are you looking? You're reading the guard. Who'd you read? Right? Like those kinds of things. Where they get and they see it in the moment. I think those kinds of things are important. And then I think the more you slow down, the maybe the the, the more the sloppiness and the penalties in those things can get eradicated. I mean, you got to you got I mean, I'm I'm in the mode with my my son's 10 months old, so he's gone from, you know, crawling to now he's standing, now he's kind of walking as he's holding things. Like there's a process to this stuff. You got to crawl, you got to stand, you got to stand and walk while you're holding on to a couch, and then you got to walk. It's just like that for sports, right? You got to crawl before you walk. You got to walk before you run. You better get down all the other, a lot of the details and a bunch of the stuff before you just go play breakneck speed. So I think that's important. The other thing that stood out to me was in my conversation with Kugler, I asked him, who was on the call for the spring game, hey, what was an interesting anecdote or anything you got from talking to the coaches? And he said, Matt Lubick told him that they they'd kind of, they kind of shrunk the playbook in spring where instead of installing, I'm just pulling a number out of my, my ass here, you know, instead of installing 40 plays, they installed 20. Again, I think that's good in the name of details, sloppiness, execution, no one, no one, your responsibilities. So I, I thought those two little anecdotes Stuck with me, and I went, oh, okay, I like that. I like that. You know, instead of trying to install in 50 things and get okay at 50 things, let's get great at 20 things. And instead of selling out to pace, 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 go, 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 go. Well, if if on Saturdays you're just sloppy and the details are bad and you're undisciplined and there's penalties and all this stuff, maybe slow down. Slow down a little bit. That was one of the, the – those two things stood out to me this spring. The other thing that that was a, a topic was, hey, what's going to happen now that, that McCaffrey left? Are they going to go get a transfer quarterback? Well, Frost just said a couple of times, whether it's on the radio or different press conferences, that they liked who they got in that room and they're going to ride with the combination of you know Adrian Martinez as a starter and then the backups are Har- Harburg, Smothers, and then Matt Masker. You know, for me, I like that. Like I, I just I've said this before. I don't think what they were looking for out there in the transfer porter portal was was realistically an option. I mean, think about it. You they were looking for a quarterback that checked all of these boxes. Okay, we want someone that's talented, cool with being the backup, doesn't care if he starts, can come in and learn the playbook in a month to where he is the second string guy potentially and can go win games if need be. And we want a guy that comes in that doesn't upset that quarterback room and maybe push one of the guys out of the program, the other quarterbacks. Mm, I mean, let's be honest. That's a lot of, really? You're going to find that guy? I just don't think that quarterback z- exists in the transfer portal. I mean, let's be honest. You bring in a transfer quarterback, like the writing's likely on the wall for a guy like Logan Smothers, for instance. Like, how is he? how else is he supposed to read into that? He likely leaves. And so I kind of like that they are riding with who they got. You got a pro con, got a pro con that, right? And at, at some point for the coaches, you know, like you either believe in your evaluating and you believe in your coaching and you believe in your ability to, to develop quarterbacks or you don't. If you don't, You'll just always think the grass is greener and go get another player, and, and and that's not good. Either Verduzco and Frost can evaluate and coach up quarterbacks right now in Nebraska, or they can't. So I just think that the short and long term of bringing in a transfer quarterback, the cons far outweigh the pros, in my opinion. That was a big question, and I think I like the decision they made. The other thing that was... Was top of mind with with Nebraska and spring ball was the wide receiver situation. I feel better about that spot right now than I did at the at the beginning of spring, and it was a huge concern. I mean, it's been a whiff fest at that spot. I mean, just the last couple of days, Jamie Nance and Demaryius Houston transferred out of the program, so that means Sam McEwen wrote about this. This is mind blowing. With with those two guys officially transferring out of the program, every wide receiver recruit in the 2017, 2018, and 2019 recruiting classes is not on the roster anymore. Let me say that again. Every wide receiver recruit that was in the 2017, 2018, and 2019 wide receiver recruiting classes are not on the roster anymore. That is almost unfathomable. But what's amazing is, even with all that turnover, I think I like how they've kind of reinvented the wide receiver spot on the fly here. I think the combination of Ture and Manning and, and Oliver Martin and Betts and Nixon, I think it's a pretty solid group right there, at least on paper, and at least looking at the eye test. So I feel better at that spot, which is massively important for this offense. But uh, on the flip side of that, the running back situation, still a major concern. It was arguably my chief concern heading into spring ball, and nothing in spring made me feel better about it. First of all, Marquis Stepp, the USC transfer who was at least on paper, potentially going to be the guy that was going to step into that spot and be maybe the bell cow running back. He has surgery right before the spring ball starts and he misses all of spring. Ugh. And that spot in general has kind of just been bit by the injury bug. Or you got a handful of soft dudes there. One of the two. I don't know. Lots of guys out with injuries or banged up or missing time. And I feel like Nebraska has a roster right now of a bunch of solid, not great running backs. Ramir Johnson, Gabe Irvin, Marvin Scott, Ronald Tompkins, Jaqueziant, Sevion Morrison. Like, all those guys are fine. I, I don't know if anybody just, just wowed me, like I felt when I first watched Amir Abdullah run or first watched Rex Burkhead run. And clearly... That that hasn't really happened in either or it happened in practice either in terms of wowing people. Like you can hear from the coaches like Ryan Hell that they want someone to step up and take ownership and become the guy at that spot. And that hasn't happened. You know, I, I just what's amazing is I can't believe that I potentially feel better about the running back spot a year ago than I do right now. I mean, think a year ago at this time on paper, you had the combination of Dedrick Mills and Wondell Robinson at that running back spot. That feels, again, on paper, better than what Nebraska has right now. It's just Nebraska's inability to find a good player at that running back spot is just, it's been maddening. Maddening. And it's really hurt the offense, man. I I think a lot of Nebraska's issues the past few years can be traced back to whiffing at the running back and wide receiver spot. People want to point to Martinez and, oh, God, Martinez is a problem. Nah, I think it's more about the lack of weapons around him. I'm not saying Martinez is Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields, but man, there's a lot of BB guns around him. When you need some bazooka, some AKs, some grenades, a lot, a lot of water pistols around him. They've just they've missed on a million wide receivers and running backs so far in Nebraska. And when the identity of your program and what you do to win games is built around an explosive and score being explosive and scoring a bunch of points, you better have studs at those skill spots. You just you better. Just like if Greg McDermott wants to run an offense that's based on pace and getting up a lot of threes and all that stuff, better have, you better have Mitch Ballock. better have Marcus Zagorowski, you, you better have guys that can play fast and knock down threes. And Nebraska just hasn't found those guys at the running back and wide receiver spot, and the running back spot needs to find a stud. And at least in this moment, I don't feel better about that, that position after the spring. I don't. The other thing with spring ball is you know, every spring you get a few names that stick with you for one reason or another. Like, or or you you get to take a look at a few players in the in the spring game and they intrigue you for one reason or another. Just their build, or they make a play, or they make a few plays in the spring game. I'd say four guys kind of have fit into one of those categories during the spring. The first one is Heinrich Harburg. Man, he's a he's an impressive looking dude. Six five, big strong. Athletic-looking kid, ball pops out of his hands, looks like he he can run a little bit. The physical tools are there. If he can put it all together and develop, he's an intriguing potential prospect at that quarterback spot. And the fact that he emerged as as the top guy that, that I commit to as your number two quarterback, I didn't think that before the spring, so that's pretty telling. The next name is Oliver Martin. First of all, his testing numbers, which have been documented and tweeted out and all that stuff, his testing numbers in the weight room with that performance index stuff was off the charts. Let's be, let's keep it real here. Let's be honest. When you see a white wide receiver, you don't necessarily think the is going to be a freaky athlete. But it looks like Oliver Martin is kind of a freaky athlete. And he clearly has had a good spring. I feel like he's going to make an impact this season. And I'm really intrigued with him as a player. He was a transfer from Iowa, highly touted dude out of high school, Gatorade Player of the Year in Iowa out of high school. He's a guy that I didn't think I'd be talking about, but here we are. The Dick Bob Podcast is brought to you by White Castle Roofing. White Castle can handle everything from replacements to repairs. And a White Castle Roofing expert can come out to your home and give you an honest assessment of your roof, even if that means nothing needs to be done. One of the best decisions I've made is to go with White Castle Roofing when my roof had some hail damage back in Omaha. And listen, when it comes to your roof, you don't want to mess around. You need people you can trust. And trust me, you can trust White Castle Roofing. When I had some hail damage, working with White Castle was smooth. It was easy. And most importantly, it was done right. If you're like me, Way out of my element with this stuff. So I need people that communicate every step of the way from start to finish. White Castle did just that. They're all about quality. They're all about craftsmanship. The crews are knowledgeable. They care about the details. And cleanup is a top priority. And when it's all finished, the roof looks great. It's going to last for years. So whether it's for your home or your business, make the smart move and go with White Castle Roofing. Check them out, whitecastleroofing.com. That's whitecastleroofing.com. White Castle Roofing, built with trust, proven by time. The next guy is Gabe Irvin. You know, I just talked about those wide res- those running backs, and I'm still concerned about that group. But if I had to pick one guy that at least maybe showed me some flash of maybe being the guy there, to me it was him. If I had to bet who lines up day one next to Adrian Martinez on August 28th at Illinois, I'd say Gabe Irvin. He popped more than the other running backs, to me. Now, again, I'm not saying he's Amon Green, right? But he, he looked like the best running back of the bunch based on the extremely limited sample size that I got to see. His name is a name that I got filed away in my brain. And then the last name is Omar Manning. I get it, man. We all got burned with the Omar Manning Kool-Aid last year, and he, he ended up being on a milk carton for the entire season. But I guess the reason I put his name down is this spring was the first opportunity for me to really get to see him physically out there running and catching passes. And, man... Good-looking dude, man. He passes the eye test. He's big. He's strong. He's fast. Looks like a guy that could take the top off a defense. Nebraska hasn't had anyone like that since Stanley Morgan left, and they desperately need one. So the reason I wrote his name down is because I finally got to see him, and I liked what I saw quite a bit. And then kind of lastly with spring ball, the, I've talked about this a little bit, but the, the, through, the Through Our Eyes series that was pushed out on social media from from the Nebraska football uh, Twitter account and Facebook account and Instagram account and all that stuff, I loved it, man. Really humanized the players. And it's it's funny after watching those things. We sure do love to talk about how players today don't get it and players today, they aren't wired the right way and all that stuff. Right, we love to kind of bang that drum. Players today, they just they don't they don't they don't get it. I don't know, man. Adrian Martinez, Deontay Williams, Desmuke, Snacks, Ty Robinson, the O line, Cam Taylor, Britt. They all seem like they totally get it to me. They totally get the reality of their situation. They totally get the 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 responsibility that they have on their plates of trying to get the program back. They they respect the history and tradition of the program. Like I, I all those guys seem like they get it to me. Next topic is you know sticking with basically r- right along these lines. I, I asked Dirk Chatlin this question in my my podcast chat with him, which you should all go check out. Dirk was money as always. We went sixty minutes. It was just great. I asked Dirk this question from the end of the Rutgers game till now, taking everything into consideration with Nebraska football that has unfolded. Do you feel better, worse or the same? I feel better. To be honest with you, not dramatically better. Not where, not like I'm going to head to Vegas and bet the house on Nebraska to, you know, win the big 10 or something like that. But I feel better. Again, I, I laid it wide rec, wide receiver position improved, looks better. The entire defense basically came back. I get it. You had a PR nightmare with trying to get out of that Oklahoma game. You also lost Luke McCaffrey and Wandell Robinson to transfer. But I just think the two glaring holes, wide receiver and running back, one of them has improved on paper. And one side of the ball, the defense, that was taking major strides, returns basically everyone. Listen, don't get me wrong. I don't think this team... Is is elite? I don't think they're going to go eleven and one. I just feel better today than I did back in December. Now, could could some of this be off season Kool Aid? Maybe, certainly possible. But I feel decent about things at the moment. And I was thinking about this, just kind of throwing this out there. You guys can get ready to spit out your drink if you take a drink, or, or roll your eyes. Over. Isn't it? Isn't it interesting how things always have a way of making sense after the fact in sports? Like. For the NCAA tournament, like as you're watching Baylor just kick the shit out of Gonzaga in the national title game and they win it all, like did it all kind of make sense? You're like, how did I ever think that this wouldn't happen? Like you watched Baylor play, and you're like, yeah, they're they're they got the best personnel, they got the best defensive personnel, they got the best half court defense, they got multiple shot makers, they got multiple playmakers with the ball in their hand. Like they're older, they're experienced. Like how did I, you you know what I mean? Like sometimes things have a way of making sense after the fact. Could you envision us next December having this conversation about Nebraska football after they win eight or nine games? Man, I, I guess it makes sense when you think about the fact that Nebraska—they got a four-year—they had a four-year starter at quarterback. They returned almost everyone on defense. That that group was older and experienced. Wide receiver group took a big step. Strength conditioning, you know, for years has them stout enough in the trenches. Frost kind of learned from his mistakes in the first few years, tightened some things up. I guess it kind of makes sense that they won nine games. They won eight games. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, again, on paper, four-year starting quarterback, pretty rock-solid, older-experienced defense, fourth year of strength and conditioning, fourth year of continuity with the coaching staff, wide receiver group improved a bit. The rest of the division, I guess, just I, don't, I don't see a team that's just lights out, right? I don't know, man. I'm just I'm just saying Nebraska has the ingredients in some ways for a team that could be better than we think. Could be better than we think. Next topic, which, you know, is along those lines of, you know, one of the things that happened was uh, Nebraska took, I think it was Southeastern Louisiana off their schedule that was going to be played in November, and they added Fordham to their schedule in September – which I like. I think it's great for confidence building. I think uh, getting you, you want to get as many games under your belt before you are playing a big dog like Oklahoma and getting to the meat of the Big Ten grind. And again, one of the things that's been kind of a common theme in each time I've talked to Barrett Rude on or off the podcast is confidence for the team. Like, they, they, you got to get that snowball going where you get the guys to where they... They see what they're doing Monday through Friday, translate on a Saturday that translates to a win, that then translates to two wins, then to three, then to four. Then it really kind of snowballs and takes off. That's where having Fordham on the schedule helps. You need to get games under your belt to get get better, and then you need to get wins under your belt to get confident. So I like it. Next topic is a uh, – is was is just kind of a thought because I was thinking about this name image and likeness stuff that's looming to uh to go into effect where college athletes can now you know I mean they can profit off their name image and likeness right feels like not it's not a matter of if but when I was thinking about like it's crazy to think that once this gets passed it's crazy to think that how much money a player makes will likely be a part of the recruiting pitch moving forward from coaches to juniors and seniors in high school sure you're you know playing time and system and coach and conference and school and social life and all that stuff you're that's all going to be part of the pitch but then there's also going to be a part of the pitch of how much money can you make at Nebraska or at Texas or at Creighton or at wherever off your name, image, and likeness. Like, I think that's going to be probably a part of it. Because they illustrate everything else, right? And as you see here, as they slide a piece of paper, like our players graduate on average of four years. Our graduation rate is this 92%, and this is what they go on to do. All that stuff, right? I mean, they have, like, all that stuff there for – to begin with, I could see, and as you can see, the average player on our roster makes, just pulling a number out, $12,000, $20,000 off their name, image, and likeness here at Nebraska. We have all the infrastructure in place for him to make that when he signs on to our program and all that stuff. Like, that's going to be part of it now. Which basically is like, there's money now going to be involved in in the pitch, which is just it's just crazy, right? I, I mean, a part of me feels like with this name, image, and likeness stuff and and the one-time transfer rule and all that stuff, like I wonder if – is college athletics going to be like almost unrecognizable in a, in a couple of years, or is that succumbing to doomsday rhetoric? I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's going to be unrecognizable. And I also have never really understood why, you know, there's some people that's like, oh, I, I don't enjoy it as much knowing that Cam Taylor Britt is going to be making money. Really? Yeah, you're you, – Really? You're a Husker fan. It's gonna change how much you enjoy watching Nebraska football if you know Adrian Martinez is making f- money selling whatever. Uh, I don't. I don't know. That seems kind of like uh, that doesn't totally make sense. I mean, it inherently changes some things potentially, but I, I was thinking about that, like these these recruiting pitches. I mean, I can picture a recruit in Scott Frost's office. And Scott Frost talking to him and his parents, like, and as you can see, uh, a player of his caliber, uh, you're, you're a wide receiver. Uh, Z- Xavier Betts was a wide receiver. He made this amount of money with this, and all. I think that's probably going to be a part of it now. And who knows what will go into a player's final decision, right? Who knows. Which leads me to my next topic, which is an an email that I received. An email from Chris. He says, Nick, I saw that Nebraska officially broke ground on that new $155 million sports facility on campus. Help me out. Do players and recruits really make decisions based on a facility? How much does this really matter? Good question. I'll, I'll say this. It matters, but it also doesn't matter. It matters, but it doesn't matter. I mean, for real, that's, that's kind of how it is. Let me lay it out. Like, it matters for recruits with how they kind of view a place. But but it's not what ultimately gets them to come to your school or not. Like, to me, it's almost like if a, uh, say you're going on a trip and you're trying to figure out a hotel. If, if a hotel is a great, it's got a, a lobby bar and it, it looks like the gym is pretty good. It's likely not the reason you choose that hotel, right? Oftentimes, you choose a hotel based on price, location, the actual physical room, etc. A cool bar in the lobby and the gym looking nice, like, oh, look, they got a Peloton in the gym. Okay, cool. Like those are kind of nice bonuses. You choose a school to go play college football or college basketball based on, you know, the coaching staff and your relationship with them. Winning, how's that how's that program in terms of winning? The conference, the system that you're going to go be playing in, playing time opportunities, fan support. You know, feeling good about the social dynamic with the teammates and the students. I think all those things rise above how nice the locker room or the players lounge is. I mean, let's just kind of reverse this thing and say it out loud. Let's say I'm a recruit and I'm choosing between two schools. I'm choosing between Roast Beef State and arbys a and i A&M. I'm looking at Roast Beef State, and I'm sitting here. I'm like, okay, I love the coaches. Got a great relationship with the coaches. The system really fits me perfectly. Looks like there's playing time available right away for me. I feel really comfortable with the guys on the team. But, man, that facility is like 20 years old. I didn't love the locker room. The players lounge you know, those didn't even have more than one TV. I, just, I don't know. Then there's Arby's A&M. You know, they just got a new coaching staff. I like them. I don't I don't know if I don't feel as good about them as others. The system, it's not ideal. The team's kind of losing a little bit, but oh my God, this new facility and the locker room and the players lounge, I, I, I'm going to go there. Yeah, I don't know. That doesn't seem overly realistic to me. And I know I'm being extreme, but I'm trying to drive home a point. It, it, so it's not the end- all be-all, but on some level it matters. And that may vary person to person. But I was thinking about this when I got that email. I know for me like I, I see the new facilities that that Creighton basketball has now, the new practice facility and and then I, I I see that and I walk through it and and get a tour and see it all. and then I think about what what I had when I was at Creighton. And I think, oh, my God, I would have died to be able to be in a facility like this. You have your own dedicated practice, at practice facility that you have access to 24-7. You have your own weight room that is brand new. You have an amazing new training room. You have an awesome, nice, comfortable locker room and a player's lounge. Man, if y'all see what we had when I was playing, we had a shitty, tiny locker room. I'm talking tiny, tiny. We shared a tiny weight room with all the other sports. Uh, you heard that right. Men's, and women's basketball, softball, baseball, rowing, golf. Everybody, we all shared one tiny ass weight room. I remember many times you go in there to be like fucking seventy people in this tiny. You'd be like, this is dumb. We we shared a, a practice gym with other things on campus. I remember I'd go up there, and be like I'm gonna go get some shots up. I'd walk in there. There's some like uh, like event going on with tables and chairs and a, pr- or like I'd walk in there and volleyball practice to be going I'm like, okay, we didn't have a player's like We had one couch with a TV and that would like inside the tiny locker room. <laughs> it was not good, man. <laughs> Things have changed though. So I do think my, ex- my experience day to day would have been dramatically better had I, you know, with this new facility compared to what I had 15, 16 years ago. But again, that wouldn't have altered my decision on where I wanted to go. So it's weird. It matters, but it doesn't matter. How's that for a head-scratching answer? I don't think I've, I've helped that, that emailer, Chris, at all. But that's just kind of how I see it. Next topic. Speaking of Creighton. Been a little quiet on the Creighton recruiting front. Now, some of that is a product of Greg McDermott had to hire two new assistant coaches. Sometimes you've got to get those coaches in place before you really attack the recruiting situation. But listen, they've had a lot of guys leave. They have a lot of available minutes and shots. Been a little quiet. But Creighton has gotten an intriguing, really intriguing recruit. Ryan Hawkins, 6'7 forward, Division II transfer from Northwest Missouri State. He just finished an incredible Division II career at Northwest Missouri State. Listen to his resume. He won two D2 national titles as a player, including this past year. He had 31 points and 18 rebounds in the national title game. His career record in college is 124-7. and seven. He's a first-team D2 All-American, a two-time MIAA Defensive Player of the Year. He averaged 22 points per game and eight rebounds a game as a senior. And he shot 41% from three for his career on 695 attempts. I mean, damn, man, you can't argue with that resume. It's an impressive resume. But the question is, will it translate from D2 to the Big East? It's a big jump. it's a big jump. Now, what's interesting, there's been a couple of examples in the Big East of Division II guys transferring, and I'm making a pretty – like, Xavier's actually had some success with two D2 big men transfers over the past few years. Max Struess from DePaul led them in scoring, was able to come from Division I to Division II and produce and be a pretty darn good player. So it's been done. It's a huge leap. There's no doubt it's a huge leap. But it's been done before. So I'm intrigued. And all I know is when I watch his highlights, now, just take this with a grain of salt and, like, like, don't go crazy here. When I watch his highlights, he isn't Doug McDermott, but he's doug He's very Doug McDermott-ish. He's Doug-ish. And Greg McDermott does really really well with the the hybrid versatile four who can slide over and play the five a bit and shoot the three and score at all different levels and you know he, he's smart he's skilled he can shoot he's a winner he's older he's 22 23 years old. I mean it's intriguing I'd say he's probably the most intriguing guy in the roster for me right now in terms of the newcomers just an incredible division two career and we'll see what he can do at Creighton I know the staff is really excited about him. And, again, I've seen Division II guys come to Division I and have some success even in the Big East. Take a drink of water, man. Woo! We're rolling with Take a Palooza here. This is great. Sticking with college basketball for a second on the next topic. <clears throat> there was recently a rule proposal to, for college basketball to go from five to six fouls. Now, I've got a handful of people tweet at me about this or this stuff. My knee-jerk reaction is I just, I don't know, I don't I don't get it. I don't like it. I guess for me, it just kind of feels like you're addressing something that isn't a big problem to begin with. My wife's kind of the queen of this. She'll, like, she'll have something. She says she's got some stuff she's got to do for work, paperwork stuff, and then she'll end up, like, I don't know, cleaning, like, the laundry room, and I'm like, what are you doing? that's That wasn't the pressing issue. That's how she procrastinates. She, like, finds in other tasks and dives into that. That's how I see it. It's like there's a lot of other pressing issues, and you're like, ah, let's focus on six fouls. But at the same time, as I was trying to like, okay, well, let me try to, like, get inside this. Uh, it, it is interesting how much foul trouble seems to play a bigger role in college basketball than in the NBA. Isn't that weird? Like, I feel like I rarely watch an NBA game where foul trouble is just enormous. You just don't see it a ton. I'm not saying you never see it, but you don't see it a ton. And so maybe this is, is trying to find a way to make sure that the best players are on the floor more often in college basketball. So adding a foul would maybe in theory make sure a guy like Jalen Suggs stays on the floor in the national title game, which I guess I can vibe with. I can vibe with that, I guess. But maybe maybe you're... you're you're treating a symptom and not the cause here. And maybe the cause is some of this goes back to how college coaches react to one of their players getting two fouls in the first half or foul trouble in general and what they do substitution-wise. More often than not, it is like an involuntary reaction when there's a second foul on someone, that player is immediately taken out of the game. And they sit them down for the rest of the half. And it's funny, you know, I hear people scream all the time on Twitter and all that stuff. Fans like, why are you sitting your player with two fouls? Put him back in. Oh my god! Handling foul trouble as a coach is an interesting topic because I've noticed this. I think a lot of uh, I think a lot of fans and media members like to app like to operate in a world of absolutes. When this happens, you do this always. If, if you're presented with this, you do that. You never do this, you always do that. And I think the reality is coaching and sport it's a lot more case-by-case feel than absolute. I don't think there is one blanket rule that can apply for how, a, how you handle foul trouble. Because there's so many factors with deciding to either leave a player out there with two fouls or that's in foul trouble or take them out. What's the player's game like? Is he a shooter? Is he a slasher driver? Is he a, a is he a big banger post? Is he an aggressive shot blocker? What's that player's intelligence level? Can he adjust and be smart? What's the score of the game? Is is the game super physical? Do you have a zone you could run to hide him? Is there someone on the on, on the floor on the other team that you can match him up with to hide his foul trouble? All that stuff matters. So I think it's really easy to sit at home on your couch and say, I'd never take a player out with foul trouble. Okay. I mean, but at the same time, I do think a lot of coaches need to take a good, long, hard look at their philosophy on how they handle foul trouble because it is a feel thing, right? Like it's, it is a feel thing, but I also think a lot of coaches just have an automatic reaction to a player getting into foul trouble and sitting him immediately. Cuz let's be honest, that's kind of what you've always done. So many coaches save and protect their player in foul trouble and they end up losing the game and losing the player for the entire game where they they don't even have their top gun out there and like what good is saving Luca Garza and protecting his foul trouble if you're down 10 late and he never even gets into a flow and makes an impact on the game? Like Sometimes I wonder if you'd be better off letting your star continue to play and and make an impact and put his fingerprints on the game and score and do all those things. And maybe he fouls out with two minutes and 42 seconds left in the game. Maybe it's better to do that than to sit him and he never gets it rolling, never makes an impact, and you're down nine at the end of the game. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by my good friends at Runza. Everybody that knows my athletic background, you know, as a quarterback – in high school. But you know, I believe in establishing the run game. And even more than that, I believe in establishing the Runza game. That's an original Runza cheeseburger, some onion rings, double dipped in a homemade batter, a little bit of a pop to top it off. You know, in football, you establish a run. But at lunch, you establish the Runza. It's just that simple. So get out to Runza today and establish the Runza game or Check out the delicious salads. you got the chicken bacon ranch salad, sweet berry chicken salad, and my personal favorite, the Southwest chicken salad. you got to get out to Runza, establish a Runza game, or get a salad. Either way, you are going to leave satisfied. Runza makes it all better. You know, isn't isn't 28 minutes of him playing through foul trouble and making an impact better than, you know, 24 minutes of him being not in a flow and he never really gets going? I, I don't know. Again, there's no blanket rule for this, and maybe adding a six foul would help. But I also think if anything, we need to decrease physicality and decrease fouling in in basketballs. So I also don't love the idea of adding a foul due to that either. But I wrote down, like the biggest things from a from a you know it's the sport of college basketball and the rule standpoint that I see as issues that are pressing are the following. And now let me preface this also with. Uh, I don't, I don't have the solutions to these. I just think they're a problem. The first one is flopping and acting. And this, you, know, you see it in the NBA, too. It's It's incredible, man. Isn't it incredible you watch basketball now how good these players are at flopping and drawing fouls and tricking officials nowadays? It's amazing. It's almost like it's become a part of the skill set for players now as they play and grow snapping their head back when handling the ball flopping acting like they got hit in the head all that stuff like it's insane we've tried different things with reviews and whatnot but man it's getting worse and not better and I just you know again I'm you know I'm almost gosh when am my 13 years removed from playing so it's like I'm not like I didn't I wasn't done playing yesterday but it's also like not like when I played without a three-point line or something like that like I just never, I never once when I played thought about like flopping or snapping my head back or selling this foul or like acting like I got hit in the elbow in the face or something. Like I just wasn't thinking about that. But it's, it's, these players think about that now. That's one thing that, that I think needs to get looked at, continue to get looked at because it's, it's brutal. The other thing is just charges, all of the charges. I mean, Jesus all these chart—it's some of this goes back to the flopping and acting, but I mean all the charges in basketball and in particular college basketball—it's just unreal to me. I mean, basically, it kind of feels like every single play at the rim, drive to the rim, results in someone attempting to slide over and under someone for a charge. We, you know, we talk about wanting to diversify our game and complain about too many threes being attempted and blah, blah, blah. Well, I think some of it is that every freaking drive, every time someone attacks the rim, someone is attempting a charge. And officials just love to call charges. They love it. I just, I'd rather reward, I think we need to reward attacking the paint and attacking the rim more so than sliding over and under someone, which, by the way, is sometimes a dangerous play. I think we should reward attacking the paint. Instead, we punish it with calling charges all the time. So I don't know. I also think we need to rethink how we view charges. I've always viewed, this is this was me growing up, how I kind of consumed basketball, thought about basketball, played basketball, thought about rules and different things. Like, I always viewed charges as basically a player control foul, meaning a player is out of control. Head down, not in control of of their body. They got sped up. They're they're not in control of the, their direction. They're flat. We've all seen like someone just flat out recklessly flying down the lane. And if that player barrels into someone who's in position, that's a charge. But I want I, I so often I see a player that is under control, has his eyes up. They're in control of their speed, and they kind of hit a defender who. Whether they are set or not is debatable and get called for a charge. And I just hate it. So I don't know. We got to continue to slide this under the microscope because, man, all these charges are just, I mean, <sighs> feels like this is an official's thing. Or the officials really got to, they got to continue to think about this because it's brutal to me. The other thing that's brutal now is, I mean, the, the game flow. At the end of games, all the fouls, all the free throws, all the timeouts, all the reviews late in the game, just absolutely crush the drama and the flow and excitement of the end of a game. I mean, if a game is 81-75 with a minute 15 left, that final 75 seconds is going to take like 10 actual minutes to finish Foul, free throws, timeout, subs, foul, review, timeout, foul, free throws, sub review, timeout, foul, free throws, timeout, review, free throws, foul, foul, free throw, timeout. It's just brutal. I mean, you could also, oh good finish brewing, here you go. And then it's just foul and free throw and review fest. So those issues are far more pressing than a sixth foul to me. Flopping and acting, all the charges, and then game flow at the end ends of games. Sticking with, with hoops for a second. Going to the NBA real quick. The MVP discussions are always kind of maddening to me. They've, they've more often than not annoyed me the last 10 years. Because, you know, the word value makes people go cross-eyed. And I, for me, I think it would make it so much easier if they just would re, They would change the award to the player of the year. NBA player of the year, not NBA MVP. Sa- save yourself the trouble of, the, of having everybody go crazy with the word value. And the other thing, too, this is just a little thing. If it's a regular season award, which it is, hand it out at the end of the regular season before the playoffs start. What is so hard about that? What is so challenging about that? This isn't a presidential election where, you know, it's going to take a week to to count up all the votes from all these different states. Like it's not, uh, no. What is so hard? Like why the NBA waits weeks and weeks and weeks to hand it, hand out the MVP till like the second or whatever, is the second or third round of the playoffs is beyond me. Count up the votes, hand out the award. What's, what is hard about that? Because you look silly. Here's, here's the thing. You First of all, you look silly when you are handing out to your league MVP to a guy who maybe got bounced in the first round of the playoffs. And you also look silly when the most important part of your season starts to get played and you don't take any of that into consideration. And maybe the the there are some guys that rise up when it really matters the most. And all of a sudden, whoever the regular season MVP, he doesn't look like the most valuable player in the league anymore. All that stuff is just such an unnecessary look for the NBA. End of the season, hand out the award. What is What is hard about that? So I wish they would eliminate the word value from the award because then it becomes incredibly subjective and up for interpretation, what makes it really tough. And then I wish they would just hand it out right at the right at the end of the regular, when the regular season ends. And you know, what's amazing is this is the first year in a while, I wouldn't give it to LeBron James. I've been on this train for a long time where it's like, it's, give it to LeBron. I mean, come on, give me a break. He's just missed too many games. Because, and this is what's hard because sometimes you can get into trouble with this historically, 20, 30 years from now, the MVP voters are going to be looked back on and think, like, people are going to look back on it and go, how did LeBron James only win four MVPs? Isn't he, like, arguably the greatest player of all time? How did he play 20 years and when only was the MVP four times? Like, I was, yeah, uh, yeah, right? Like, looks stupid. Like, now, I mean, let's be honest. You go back and look at, like, the 1990, Carl Malone being the MVP in 1997 and Michael, not Michael Jordan. I mean, how dumb does that look now? It looks so dumb. So I, I don't know. You can't get caught up to that of like how something, how historians will view this. But like I don't know. I also like think you gotta you gotta do do certain players and and the moment and the era justice. But for this year, I wouldn't give it to LeBron. And also for this year, I'll, I haven't watched as much uh, watched the NBA as close as I usually do. Maybe it's just having uh, the second kid and all that stuff. I don't know. But sometimes that not watching it as closely can have its advantages because I think people sometimes are people who are wrapped up in the day to day of it can't see the forest through the trees. Sometimes you're too close to something to see it, or you're you've, you're too close and you've thought yourself. It appears like Nikola Jokic is going to win the MVP. And listen, Jokic is incredible. He's had an amazing year. He's dealt with Jamal Murray getting hurt this year, and Denver is still one. He's been durable. He's been awesome. But I guess from the thirty thousand foot view from above, how is Chris Paul not the MVP? He he joins the Phoenix Suns. Last year, the the Suns were were five. So a year ago, when Chris Paul wasn't on the Phoenix Suns, the Suns were were five games below five hundred, had a losing record, didn't make the playoffs. Chris Paul joins the team, and as I'm taping this, the Suns have the second best record in the NBA. They're currently the two-seed in the West, and who knows, maybe Utah could falter and Phoenix could be the one-seed in the West. So again, losing record without Chris Paul, losing record, five games below five did didn't make the playoffs. Chris Paul joins a team, second-best record in the NBA. You want to talk value. I mean, it doesn't get much more crystal clear in extrapolating value than that, right? So, you know, to me, Chris Paul is the MVP. Th- that, to me, I, and this isn't an anti-Jokic thing. I love Jokic. But I don't know. I just think what Chris Paul has done with Phoenix this year is incredible. All right, last topic for, to- for Take-A-Palooza. Hope you guys have enjoyed this. So, you know, I I'm, it's a birthday week for me, May 14th, I, I turned 37 years old, 37 and Sheesh. getting old, getting old is interesting because as you, as you age, there are little things that you notice that are little checkpoints and indicators of like, man, I'm getting old your body and how it feels. Like if I sleep in the wrong position, like I'm, I'm, I'm out of commission for like maybe 48 hours. Your hair, losing your hair, your ability to party, your your overall energy, having kids. But for me, there's something that has happened that has also been a little checkpoint for me. Something has happened with music that is that is telling for me. So anybody that knows me knows that I, I like I'm I'm a hip hop fan. For as long as I can remember, I've just gravitated towards it and been obsessed with it and a fan of hip-hop for forever. Isn't that weird? Like, just for as long as I can remember, the music I liked when I was, like, I'm talking, like, eight years old. Like, I just always liked Run DMC and, and like, LL Cool J and then, like, Jay-Z and Dre and Pac and DMX. Like, I just, just always have been gravitated towards. Like, I remember I got run, one of the first CDs I ever got was Run DMC's Greatest Hits just have always loved it. Like, I I mean, I was like 10 years old in my basement watching Rap City the Basement with Big Tigger. You know, like, I just love, I've always loved hip-hop. But I've noticed something the past year or two. I think I'm officially in a place where I don't like new hip-hop. And, and listen, man, I really try to seek it out and consume it. So I have some people, I have an Apple Music account. like, And on Apple Music, they make these playlists for you of the new hot hip-hop. And I'll listen to it because I'm like, okay, I got to stay with it. I want to see what's new, all this stuff. Okay, this new artist, this new song, all this stuff. And I listen to it, and I'm like, man, this shit just sucks. <laughs> like, I listen to it, and I'm like, it doesn't hit me. and since i could really consume new hip hop so going back to when i was 11 12 13 years old i've always liked new artists new songs new trends new that, like i've i've all that stuff until now i just don't with the exception of drake and maybe dudes like J. cole but those guys are like the elder statesmen of the rap game now I just don't feel like any of the I don't like any of the new rap out there. And one of the things that was telling for me too is what uh, what did it for me was Kevin Durant was on a podcast and he was asked okay you know which which rapper in, is is the hottest in the NBA right now in terms of like which rapper wh- who who is getting played in all the NBA locker rooms for all the games. And his answer was The Baby. And I'm like The Baby what? I've heard of the baby but I couldn't name one song so I like I was like, okay Kevin Durant says this this is what like all right here we go I'm gonna I went and I was like, let me go to Apple music pull up the baby I'm a really okay here we go uh I couldn't do it. it was just bad And the reason I bring this up for me for some reason this feels like a big crossroads moment for me in getting older. Cause, think about it. Anybody that's listening to this, think about it. At some point, my dad just only listened to old music. Right, I remember him driving me to middle school and and practice and stuff. And like, there was in Lincoln, there was ninety five one and ninety two nine. The Eagle were the two like old school rock, classic rock stations. Right? like at some point, he just like was like listen i'm if it what i'm listening to 60s 70s songs that's it same thing with your dad or your mom or your uncle or your whatever like at some point like did you stop listening to new music and maybe it's already happened for you because it kind of happens to almost everyone and i fear that i'm getting to that place that place of you only really listen to old music. That feels like a seminal moment, like crossroads moment in getting old. So yeah, maybe I'm alone in this feeling, but man, you 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 can't help what you like and what you don't like. And I feel like I'm officially in a weird place with music. I, I'm I'm in that old person place. Of only liking old music, which to me means you are old, right? That's kind of a weird thing. So, happy birthday to me. I'm going to be listening to 90s hip hop. And, you know, that's just, I guess that's how it is. I guess that's how it goes. All right, how about that? I need to get a drink of water, rest my voice, boy. Hour 20 minutes? I mean, come on, take a palooza? This is great. This was great. I'm going to go rest my voice, get a cough drop, drink some water. Thanks for listening. All right, my thanks to Pella. If you're thinking about a new window or a new door, now is the time. Check them out online on the web at PellaOmaha.com. That's Omaha. .com and uh, my thanks to my good friends at Runza. Best fries on the planet, great burgers, cheap runza, delicious. The food is simply fantastic. Runza makes it all good. Ahura Media Productions.